You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. I'm Jesse, and I am super excited to be up here today. John 15 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and so I'm really excited to delve into it a little bit today. But last week, we finished uh, Psalm 23 in a four-week series on Psalm 23, And I thought it was such a cool building block for what we've been talking about. And like it followed up the Sermon on the Mount in such a really cool way and which followed up our Galatian series in such a cool way. And so I've I've been ruminating and thinking and just watching how even these passages of scripture that I've read over and over and over and over again and how just listening to them and studying them in that order, I just learned something new um, from that in such an unexpected way. And so then this John 15, even though it is one of my favorite passages of scripture, and I've read it over and over again, just reading it in the context of having just gone through Galatians and having just gone through the Sermon on the Mount and then reading Psalm 23, it just gave me a whole new understanding and appreciation for it. So I'm pretty excited to share that with you, as well as it correlated to some of my just like light reading that I do for fun. Um, because I read like psychology books and things on shame and narcissism and neuroplasticity just in my free time. And it's amazing to see how reading those things also pulled together in John 15 and in Psalm 23. And it's almost like somebody created psychology in our brains and all of that. And I have just been blown away by watching all these threads from all the different places like weave together in this beautiful picture of vine and branches, which also weave together in a really cool viney way. So welcome this morning. I'm very excited about some of the things that I have learned. And I kind of approach every of these teachings like, if you learn nothing and I learn something, it's still totally a win. So (laughs) anyway, um, one of these many threads led me to think through one of my personal spiritual practices that I do called a breath prayer. A breath prayer is something that is a way people have been praying for thousands of years. And my personal breath prayer is the word abide and has been for a while. And the idea of a breath prayer is a way to calm your mind and your body and focus on stillness and emptying your brain so that the Holy Spirit can fill it, which is a little bit different than Eastern meditation, which kind of looks the same, except the idea behind that is to fully empty your brain. And as Christians, we want to empty it so that the Holy Spirit can come. And so my word is abide. So what that typically looks like is, of course, it's in my head, so it sounds a little bit funny saying it out loud, but I inhale, uh, and I exhale, bide. And I just say that over and over and over again, uh, bide. And that's my, whenever I hear my thoughts drifting, then I repeat that breath prayer, and that's 
my, my way to kind of empty myself. So after a while of doing, using that word, it suddenly occurred to me like, why is that my breath prayer? What does the word abide actually mean? And where do I find it in scripture? And it's there a lot, actually. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at this word abide and what it means. This week, we're going to talk about what abide means with our relationship with God. Who is God that we are abiding in? Uh, what, is, what does that mean for us? And how do I abide? And then next week, we're going to look at what that should do in my heart. What does abiding in this God do in my personal relationship with him? And then after that, what does that do for my community? Because we don't just abide in God for our own selves. We do it so that we can love those around us. So that's the next three weeks here. So before we get too far in, I want to pray. And I'm going to pray uh, from a book called Every Moment Holy, which is a book of prayers that I love. And this is one of the ways that I, that I abide. So it's a liturgy for first waking. And so I often do this when I first wake up in the morning, and it's a way to center myself and um, focus on the purpose of my day. So I'm going to read this for us. I am not the captain of my own destiny, nor even of this new day. And so I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuit of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. Teach me to shepherd the small duties of this day with great love, tending faithfully those tasks you place within my care, and tending with patience and kindness the needs and hearts of those people you place within my reach. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord Christ. I deposit now all confidence in you that whatever these waking hours bring, my foundations will not be shaken. At day's end, I will lay me down again to sleep, knowing that my best hope is well kept in you. In all things, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow, and I will follow. Amen. Abide. I feel like I've trained you well enough to know that when we hear a word, what is the first thing we do? The dictionary, yay, abide. Here's what Webster says about the word abide. First, it can be a transitive verb or an intransitive verb. And I know there's some of you out there that are so excited about that little grammar tidbit. Uh, if you don't know what that is, that's totally fine. A transitive verb means a verb that transfers the action to something else. And an intransitive verb means that it doesn't transfer the action. So intransitive here means to be, exist, to continue, to dwell, rest, stand firm, or be stationary for any time indefinitely. Where a transitive verb is to wait for something, to be prepared for something, to await something. It's transferring the action. 
hold on to that little grammar tidbit because uh, we'll use that in a little bit. So what do I already know about the word abide? Now that we have a definition of that, we ask ourselves, what do I already know? What stories from the Bible come up from us? What stories from my own life come up when I think of the word abide? For me, I think of the word dwell, to dwell, and that instantly puts me back to the Old Testament. In Genesis, God's original purpose of creation was to dwell and walk amongst his people. I've been reading through the book of Genesis right now, and I was struck by those early stories and the realization that God does not stop walking with his people after the fall. The first couple of chapters of Genesis are filled with all the broken, sinful people who are having full-on conversations still with God outside of the garden. Cain talks with God. There's a big, long list of all the really old guys in chapter 5. And Enoch was a man who walked with God. And so God didn't actually, he didn't die. God just took him up to be with him. Abraham, we know, has a couple of encounters with God. And then in Exodus, Moses talks with God through the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. And God appears to the people of Israel while they're wandering in the desert in the form of smoke and fire. So God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, throughout so much of these early stories. In Numbers 9, it talks about the cloud covering the tabernacle, and it says this. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there. The people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. So they're here wandering in the desert, and they're literally being led by God throughout all of it. They know when to stop. They know when to set out. And... He's there with them that whole time. So when they're no longer wandering, Solomon built an actual temple for the Lord, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in it with the Ten Commandments, and it says in 1 Kings 8 that the glory of the Lord descended into the Holy of Holies as a cloud, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So when I look at the Bible as a whole story, I see a God that dwelt with his people. God with us, Emmanuel. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, but God didn't leave them. When God's people were in slavery and cried out to him, he heard them. When David yelled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was able to immediately follow it up with, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. You can read Psalm 105 and 106 if you need a more comprehensive list of all the ways God's people failed and he continued to walk next to them. This whole story is a story of God abiding with his people. 
So feel that for a minute. Hold on to that deep truth. And then look again at chapter 15 in John. If you have Bibles or open it or want to look at it, um, and just look at it for a minute and notice what visually what you see from John 15. Uh, the first thing that sticks out to me, and I actually went through my John 15 and I highlighted the word abide. You can see it's in there a lot. <laughs> um, it's actually in there 11 times. The word fruit is used eight times. Branches is used six times. And the word vine is used four times. So just by visually looking at this passage, we instantly see a couple of important themes and ideas that are sticking out to us. And when I consider this passage in the context of the whole book of John, I see that it's near the end of the book and is one of the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he dies. So these are Jesus's words, and in itself, that holds a lot of weight. This concept of abide or abiding is clearly one that is important to gather here because Jesus says it 11 times. You don't repeat something 11 times if you just don't want it to stick. We know that the idea of God abiding with his people is not a new one and that Jesus himself was specifically called Emmanuel. In this passage, Jesus calls himself the vine and his father the vine dresser. The message translates this as, I am the real vine and my father is the farmer. We see that Jesus is, is himself asserting the words real and true. And that stuck out to me, those words, um, true, especially. So I, of course, looked it up. Um, true means, one, being in accordance with the actual state of things, fact, genuine, pure, real, not counterfeit. And those, when I think of the word true, those are usually the things that I think of. And then three kind of blew me away a little bit. Faithful, steady, and adhering to friends, to promises, loyal, not false or fickle. Those three definitions in conjunction together, like Jesus is saying he's true. He's all those things. He's real, genuine, faithful, steady, loyal, not fickle or false. That right there is good news. Such good news. But that's not even all the good news that's right there in that little passage. This idea of vine and branches is not a new metaphor in the Bible. To ancient Jews, this metaphor would have immediately evoked some really powerful images from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, there's this beautiful and heartbreaking song about how a gardener planted a vineyard and watered it and protected it, and it yielded only wild or bad grapes. It's this sad lament over this useless vineyard that the gardener loved and cared for, but he had to let it get destroyed because even though the gardener did everything it could, he could, it only yielded wild grapes. And then the song continues by explicitly saying that the vineyard is the house of Israel and the people of Judah and that they will be destroyed. And a very dire picture is painted in this rest of the song regarding the fate of this particular vineyard. 
It's not a happy one. And then it's followed up in chapter 11 with this uh, poem that we hear often at Christmas time. 11, one through three. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Why does this passage in Isaiah matter? Because Jesus is telling us that he's the true vine and we're the branches. And it's so much bigger than that metaphor in John. Don't get me wrong, it's powerful enough to have meaning in and of itself. But knowing this deeper history fills me with so much more awe. This passage in John is Jesus declaring himself not just the true vine, but the culmination of the promises made in the Old Testament. Here, Jesus is saying, I am the true, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the king from the line of David. And you who are abiding in me will bear fruit. And what's the result of that abiding? Verse 3 tells us delight. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Because we abide and rest wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and knowledge and fear, and not scary fear, but awe. This is good, good news to us. Jesus is the answer to all those promises that were being made throughout the whole Bible. All those arrows of the clouds and the fire and the conversations and the whispers and the wind, they were all pointing to the time that the true vine would come in the flesh and would abide with us. Let's keep going in John. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This passage feels a little scary and uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of Jesus who snuggles sheep and children, throwing branches into the fire, knowing that the metaphor of those branches are pe people who aren't abiding in him. I know I personally spent a lot of my 90s church upbringing questioning my salvation and doing altar call after altar call after altar call just to be safe. But this passage ought to actually make us feel more secure in the nature of Jesus, not less. Hopefully some of you out there have spent some time gardening, uh, especially with fruit trees. 
at my house, we have a couple of acres. And so every January and February, we need to go through all of our fruit trees and cut off parts of them. Because if you leave all the branches, then the tree puts all of its energy into creating more branches and growing the leaves instead of creating fruit. So if you want a high yielding crop and a healthy whole plant, pruning is actually necessary. So Jesus is the vine and his father is the farmer. As the farmer, it is his responsibility to maintain his crop so it's the healthiest that it can be and yields the best fruit. And he's willing to do that hard work. He's willing to do the hardest work. The way he does this is to recognize and cut out the wild grapes like we saw in Isaiah, or to recognize the branches that are already dead and are impeding the growth of the rest of the bush. Verse six is naturally followed by verse seven, which says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my, father, my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It's important to recognize here that the pruning happens to, happens to the vines that are already dead and not producing fruit. This isn't a gardener just going through and saying, well, that branch is too narrow and I don't really like the color of that one and I wish that one wasn't there. That would be a fickle farmer and we know that ours is true and reliable. This is a good gardener who loves his grapevine and is putting all of his time and energy and effort into cultivating and caring for the vine. And he's so willing to do that, he's willing to cut away the dead bits that didn't thrive so that the rest of the vine can. We have a gardener who is consistent and knowledgeable and is willing and able to see the branches that aren't producing good fruit. And here's the other piece of good news here. We have a lot of choice. <laughs> Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You're on the vine and you can choose to abide and stay on that vine or you can choose not to. When Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, that's not a threat. It's an invitation, a choice, an encouragement. You can choose to keep his commandments, which will result in abiding love and fruit, or you cannot keep his commandments, and you will not produce fruit, and you will be separated from the vine that wants nothing more than for your flourishing. This teaches me such beautiful things about who God is. I was struck so deeply about how secure God is in himself to be able to give the people the freedom to choose. Imagine your relationships with people. Have you ever had that person who either just blatantly tells you they don't like you or you're just not quite sure how they feel about you and how that feels and how like, you bend over backwards to do the things and change yourself so that you can be who they want you to be. That like, that's middle school right there, right? And, and even if you get to the place where you're like, okay, it's fine. I, not everybody has to like me. There's still that like insecurity deep within yourself. Jesus does not have this at all. He says, 
I am who I am. Take me or leave me. He still died for everybody, even if they didn't choose him. The dead branches are dead because of their own choices, not because they weren't clean. Jesus said, already you are clean, but the choice to remain is ours. Not that it doesn't grieve him or make him mad when people walk away and mistreat others, but he still leaves us to make our own choices. And this confidence, this is what we get to abide in. Verse 15.4 in the message says, live in me, make your home in me just as I do in you. Make your home in me. This is a secure place to make our home in. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does, them, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is where we can build our house. This is our abiding place. One that is secure no matter what comes our way. Our place is secure because God is secure. He is consistent, confident, never changing, and he cares enough about each of us to provide this place if we choose to put our house there or not. This parable, like the vine, shows us that we do have other choices. We can build our house on the sand. But just like the vines thrown into the fire, destruction is the result. Remember those transitive and intransitive verbs? You can choose to abide in transitive. You can just live, dwell, go about your life, or you can choose to abide transitive. You can live in God. You can abide in the vine. You can dwell on the rock. Which type of abiding are you doing? Which type of abiding do you want to be doing? We're going to be talking a lot more in depth on personal abiding next week, but I wanted to give you a firm grasp on who we are abiding in before I talk about how. But be curious going into this next week. Be honest with yourself about what you're abiding in and what you want to be abiding in. If abiding in is something that appeals to you, then you might be asking how. Hopefully you're asking how. What does it look like? Clearly, it does not literally mean going out and building a house on a rock. But in this passage in John, Jesus says abiding looks like keeping his commandments and bearing fruit. Abiding in can be a really hard concept to people because it's not a 10-step process that you can accomplish and mark off your to-do list. If you think there is a list of rules to follow and check off after listening to the Sermon on the Mount, then head on over to Mark 10 when Jesus is talking to the rich young man. That man had pretty successfully checked off all the big things on his list, but he still was unable to get into heaven because he was trying to do it on his own merit. 
And Jesus tells his disciples after that man left, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Or, as John says in 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Come tomorrow at 7, and you can practice some abiding work there in a tangible way. But abiding is more about letting go of your control and your accomplishments and surrendering to the one that is more than capable of handling whatever you choose to give him. I love the Father in Mark 9. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That is abiding. There's no master list that you can pat yourself on the back afterwards and say, did it, I got it, I'm abiding now. This is a relationship with God that requires effort, focus, attention, and humility. Eugene Peterson describes in his book, A Long Obedience in in the Same Direction, uh, he, he uses hope, but I think it totally applies to abiding. So I'm gonna read this. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That is not hoping in God, but bullying God. I pray to God, my life a prayer, and wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. Abiding means hoping and knowing that the Lord is good, that he is faithful and consistent and sure, and then acting on that knowing. It is about working towards a relationship with him by praying and being in communication with him. Just like any other relationship we have, it requires time and energy and commitment. I know it can feel like empty Christianese to say, read your Bible and pray, but really, it can be that simple. How much time do you spend reading your Bible? How much time do you spend in prayer? These questions aren't meant to shame you or guilt you, but to make you curious. They're meant for reflection. Imagine your relationship with your best friend. If every time he or she called you, you ignored the phone call or didn't open the texts or emails, the relationship would probably die, and it wouldn't matter how much you loved each other, they, that other person would eventually get the hint and stop reaching out. You can ignore those phone calls or texts, and ultimately, it is your decision on whether or not to do that. When our relationship with God is firmly grounded in an abiding relationship, then good fruit is produced through us 
and the work the good gardener put into the cultivation of that fruit. We just went through Galatians, so we know that what that fruit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are good things for the restoration of our souls. If you lived on an isolated island and all alone and you were filled with these things, you would be pretty content. Despite any circumstances, no one complains about being filled with love, joy, peace, etc. The result of our abiding, abiding in Christ brings him this glorious, fruitful vine, but it also brings blessings and good things to us. Because he is so good, so consistent, so joy-filled, the closer to, we stand to him, the more we shine out his goodness. In my reading of neuroplasticity, I read about something called mirroring. We take on mannerisms, language, cadence, accents, attitudes of the people we are most often around. People who have been married for a long time actually do start to resemble each other, scientifically speaking, because they uh, subconsciously will start making the same facial expressions that person is making, and then you get lines on your face that are the same because you're making the same facial expressions. So the older and wrinklier you get, the more similar you look like each other. There's other implications other than that, but it's pretty cool. And we get to mirror the king of the universe. That's what abiding is. It's mirroring goodness itself. It's taking on the traits of love, joy, gentleness. This is good, good news for us but it's also good news for anyone we come in contact with. At Hub City, our mission is Jesus Restore Albany. I talked a couple of weeks ago about that word restore and what it means, and that the idea of restoration is to bring something back to its original intended purpose, something that's been broken and destroyed. Abiding is our way to get back to that purpose. Abiding is the way for us to get back to how God created us to be dwelling here on this earth. It brings restoration to our hearts through our relationship with God. And that, in turn, brings restoration to all the world from a peace-filled, restored, abiding place. This, this abiding restoration is what I want for myself and for us as a community of believers committed to partnering together with Jesus to restore Albany. So when you come to the tables this morning, I hope you come curious about what it looks like to abide and deepen your understanding of who you're abiding in. Come ready to surrender in worship and lift up your voice and your heart to the good gardener who has already made you clean and is taking care of you. Come ready to receive the blessing of his blood and body that was broken so the spirit could come and abide here with us today. Come ready to give of your time and attention and your resources to the one who first gave us everything.